Well, I have a story of another hero for you today. And, uh, of course, the whole reason that we're doing this uh, series on heroes from the Old Testament is because, uh, not just because of great lives lived, because each of their lives points to Jesus Christ and the life in Christ. And also, uh, in particular today, uh, this story of Elijah tells, uh, it's in the setting of a society that is a uh, pluralistic, polytheistic society where there's a worship of many gods. And I, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever picked up a Mountain Express lately, but uh, if you look up in a section called spirituality, uh, you'll find all kinds of things that really indicate that we live in a pluralistic, polytheistic uh, society right here in Asheville. Uh, you know, if you want to join the group about astral counseling, you can. Uh, ageless living. Uh, there's uh, the Anatatsi Salabla Maga group. Uh, I can't, there's uh, something with some, some sort of form of Zen uh, going on there. Uh, there's the Medicine Lodge. Uh, there's the Baha'i Temple over here, uh, not far from us. There is um, some Buddhist hermitage meetings. Uh, there's a couple of witches' covens. And of course, you have to choose between the traditional one and the contemporary one. Just like, uh, you know, some of our Christian churches uh, that Christian faith, they argue about uh, contemporary and uh, uh, whatever, you know. So um, just to say that uh, Jesus also lived in a time where he was born into a polytheistic society in the Roman world where there's a pantheon of, of gods. So I, I'm just saying that the message that was, that's in here was given at a time just like ours, just like our society. And so the message today is just as applicable and the gospel is just as powerful as it was 2,000 years ago. And it has a lot to say about the day that we're living in right now and right here. So let me catch you up from uh, King David where Sherry uh, talked about last week and uh, to present to Elijah's time. Uh, there was King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, the first three kings of Israel, really established the kingdom uh, in a sense in the eyes of the rest of the world. Although before that time they were a nation, they were a nation ruled by God, but now they had a king and God permitted that. And uh, uh, with uh, David and Solomon, it was really the glory days where Israel really flourished and became alive and uh, their territory expanded. But uh, at the end of Solomon's life, things begin to deteriorate and it's always uh, became a deterioration uh, point when uh, kings uh, led their people astray and began worshiping other gods. And this is what happened in Solomon's life. Well, uh, the next uh, generation following Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam, there was a civil war that broke out in Israel and the nation was split in two. And so there were the 10 tribes that went to the north, uh, the 10 tribes of the north, and they were called the Northern Kingdom or Israel. And uh, their, their story is recorded in First and Second Kings. And it's a dark uh, sordid story with uh, really degenerate kings that lead Israel down a path that eventually leads to uh, them all being uh, uh, taken captive to Assyria or being destroyed. Uh, then there was the southern kingdom, the, the other part that was really made up of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and a few Levites. Uh, some of the Levites went to Israelites and, and led them in a false worship of false gods. So, um, and Judah's story pretty much mirrors Israel's but it's just a little slower because there are a few good kings that lead the people in worship of God and really uh, lead the nation well. And so their judgment from God is, is delayed. So it's during this time 
when there are these kings and the people that are lapsing in and out of sin and coming to God, being unfaithful to God, during this time that God begins sending this certain type of person called a prophet. And the prophet came to communicate the word of God to the people and he would exhort them to obey the word of God and how they were to obey it in that time and place and what God was asking of them. And his, their message was, always seemed to be, turn your hearts back to God. Well, it's during this time of unfaithfulness that God sends a prophet named Elijah. And he just appears on the scene. There's no introduction of where he comes from or his family or anything like that. And, and, and he appears to come and speak the word of God to one of the most evil kings in the history of Israel. And his name is King Ahab. Now, Elijah and his story stands out. I could have picked another prophet. We could have, uh, our, our communication team could have picked a different hero uh, among the prophets to, to describe. But Elijah stands out because uh, of some certain things that happened to him in the Old Testament and some, some certain places where he's mentioned in the New Testament. Elijah stands out because he is a man who has faith that takes a stand and he's not afraid. And, and that's what we need in our day and age. And we need some more heroes in our day and age that are able to take a stand. The other reason that Elijah stands out is that he's one of two men that did not die a natural death. Instead, uh, he's what theologians would say was translated uh, out of this life and into the spiritual world, into heaven. And uh, Enoch is the other guy. If you want to search and look him up, you can find his name. Um, the other thing is that Jesus mentions Elijah. He says that uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, basically carrying the same message. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated. No, that's not that. In fact, uh, Jesus has an encounter with Elijah in his glorified heavenly state, along with Moses. When he goes up onto the mountain and, is tra- and Jesus is transfigured, he meets and talks with Elijah and Moses. So, and then later in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle James speaks of Elijah, and he, he speaks of it in the contents of prayer, context of prayer, saying that Elijah was just a man like us, and we, since we're just ordinary folks like Elijah, ought to pray like Elijah. And he mentions a specific prayer that he prayed that the heavens uh, would not rain for three and a half years, and then he prayed, and then the heavens rained. And this is the beginning of the story that I want to tell to you that comes from the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. And so Elijah goes to Ahab. Why was he going to Ahab, the most evil king in, in the history of Israel? Why would God send somebody to that? Why wouldn't he send him to somebody else who might be a little more primed to receive a message and to possibly turn? You know, sometimes we, we, we choose who we think we'll share the gospel with because we think, man, that person won't hear it. They're closed. I mean, they're just off doing their thing. You know, maybe sometimes we shouldn't choose. We should let God do what he wants to do in us and through us and that we should be willing and open to share anytime, any place. Well, God decided that uh, Ahab needed to be confronted and uh, warn, to warn him and the nation of Israel to turn from their idols and turn back to God. And uh, the thing is, is that God always gives people chance he always gives people a chance to turn back to him. It doesn't matter where they are or how evil they may seem. God always gives people a chance to turn back to him. And, and what's true, was, was true then is true today. The same offer stands. And that God is devising ways for his people to come back to him. And he's made a way for people to come back to him. 
So, and I want you to know that today, the gospel is not only inviting, but the gospel is also confronting. And, uh, I, you know, sharing this message, there were some folks that got up and left in the, in the first, first message. And, and I want you to know that, you know, when I read about those groups that meet in Asheville, I, I'm, I'm not coming down on those people. God loves those people. I want you to know that the God loves all of us. But when we say yes to Jesus, there's also other things that we say no to. And I think there's a little confusion that sometimes, you know, I can say yes to Jesus. I've said yes to Jesus. Why can't I also say yes to Buddha? Why can't I also say yes to Baha'i? Why can't I also say yes to my Muslim practices? And there's... There's some reasons for that. And I hope you listen and understand in the next few moments as I explain why God wants us to say yes to him and no to all others. All right? So God was sending Elijah to confront Ahab and Israel. Now, Ahab was not only doing evil, but he was also leading the people astray in doing evil. He and his wife Jezebel, who was also recorded as the most evil woman in the history of Israel, were working together to lead the people astray in the worship of Baal. And they not only led the people to worship him, but they also supported the prophets who were leading the people and teaching the people how to worship Baal. And they fed these uh, false prophets from their royal table and from the taxes of the people. And uh, so uh, they were also killing the prophets of God, any time that they ran into him. So during this time, uh, many of the prophets went into hiding, except for one, and his name was Elijah. Now, the leading of, uh, in the worship of Baal, who is Baal and what was worship of him like? Well, uh, Baal was, was basically a farm god. Uh, he was the farm god and, uh, of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, and uh, the worship of him was supposedly uh, because he was responsible and uh, for the fertility of crops, fertility of flocks, and the fertility of families. And of course, if you lived in that day, uh, it was a confusing time. You had confusing messages about these forces of nature. And these forces of nature would would have influence. Why did my crops fail? Well, I'll turn to the God of crops. Why did my wife miscarry? Well, I must not have pleased the gods who are concerned with fertility and that sort of thing. And so people would try to control these unknown forces, and they thought there was a way to do this through the worship of these gods. And so they did whatever they could. And so it was as if they hoped that somehow they could control the happiness. Because if you had good crops, hey, life was good. Things were happy. If you had children, life was good. You were happy. So maybe I can control how I get happiness. Maybe I can somehow hang on to it. So they were willing to sacrifice a portion of their crops, their income, and give it as a sacrifice to these these gods. They were also encouraged to sacrifice children, human sacrifices, to assure future happiness. So the worship of Baal was was with uh, the making of idols. It was with these lewd rituals. It was with uh, making certain sacrifices and human sacrifices. So Baal was often worshipped alongside also this goddess named Asherah. And uh, she was kind of the female counterpart of this whole fertility goddess and goddess thing going on. And the people worshipped them because they, again, they were trying to grab onto things that they they didn't have and trying to hang on to happiness. But Baal, what literally translated, means 
Lord. Literally translated, it means possessor. And the people thought, well, hey, working through this false god, I'm going to possess happiness. I'm going to control happiness. I'm going to be Lord over happiness. But see what happened was the reverse happened. They became controlled by these false gods. They became possessed by these false gods. And I know, I know that the Lord didn't like that. I know that he didn't like that. He didn't like his people calling anyone else Lord. He didn't like the idea of his people belonging to anyone else because he had these people. They were purchased. They belonged to him. You know, Jesus later um, revealed the source behind this idol worship and these false gods, Baal and Asherah. He, uh, Jesus uh, used the Philistine word for Baal. Uh, the Philistine word for Baal was Baal, Zebub. And Jesus later said and used this name for Satan, Baal-Zebub, the prince of demons. That is what is behind this false worship and the idol worship. It's behind the polytheism that's here in Asheville. It's what's behind the polytheism across the globe and in major cities all around the world. So how does God warn Ahab and Israel? Well, Elijah says it's not going to rain for three years. God's serious about this. He and he alone wants to be worshipped. And so he's going to cut off a life source to the land. You cut off the life source to the land. You cut off the life source to the crops, to the animals. You cut off the life source to them. You cut off the life source to the people. This is serious business. So there's a famine that hits the land. Not just drought, but famine. And it hits not only the land of Israel, but the surrounding areas. And it's during this time that uh, Elijah goes, tells the king, and then he, he whisks away. God says, go hide in this ravine out in the desert. He does, and that's when the ravens come and feed Elijah. And there's this brook that brings him water. It finally dries up because the rain hasn't come. And so Elijah goes and he hangs out with a widow out in another country where the famine is also hit. And God miraculously, miraculously provides food for them and for the widow and her son. And that's another story. But Ahab and the people of Israel, they don't repent. Their hearts don't turn back to God. And so God says, okay, we got to bring this to a head. I'm not getting through to these people through famine and through drought and through taking away their animals and and causing suffering. So we're going to have to be more direct about this. They aren't getting the message, Elijah. You're going to go to the king and you got to talk to him. And so Elijah goes in, in danger of his life because Ahab and Jezebel are out killing any of the prophets of the Lord that are left alive. And on the way, Elijah runs into one of the king's servants called Obadiah. And Obadiah secretly worships the Lord. He doesn't let anybody know. But he's hidden away a hundred prophets, 50 in one cave and 50 in another. And he supplied food to them. And when he runs into Elijah, Elijah says, take me to your master, Ahab. And uh, Obadiah's like, what? No, no, this is, this is going to be bad. You don't want to go. You need to go hide. You need to go run away. But Elijah says, no, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to obey God. And if I stand, I'll stand alone. And so he goes. And uh, knowing that he's not the only one, but knowing that he's the only one who's ready to take a stand. And he still goes. And he approaches Ahab. And the scripture says that when Ahab saw Elijah in the distance, he yells out to him and says, Is that you, Elijah, the troubler of Israel? Shifting the blame. Shifting the blame, blaming God for what's going on, and blaming God's representative. But Elijah doesn't put up with it. He turns it right back around and says, I'm not the one who's brought trouble on Israel. You have Ahab. 
you and your family for turning away from the commands of God and worshiping Baal and leading the people astray to do the same thing. And Elijah, Elijah brings it right to the forefront. And uh, Elijah then, at this point, begins the story that we're going we're gonna to get into. And, and Ahab says to Elijah, uh, Elijah says to Ahab, I'm issuing a challenge. I'm issuing a challenge. I want you to gather all the people of Israel and I want you to get them on top of Mount Carmel. And I want you to get the 450 prophets of Baal. And I want them to come up there. And I want you to get their 400 companion false prophets of Asherah. And I want them up there too, all 850. And I'm going to issue a challenge. So King Ahab does it. He, he calls the people together. And in a few days, they gather on top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah stands there facing 850 false prophets and all, the, all of Israel surround, surrounding, eyes on him, watching what's he going to do? What's this going to be out? Are we going to get a good show or not? And uh, they know that there's a confrontation. They know that this is a showdown. But then, surprise, the showdown doesn't start with the prophets. The showdown starts with the people. And Elijah turns to the people and he asks them this question that Sue asked of, with the children. He says, how long? How long will you waver between two opinions? Ask a tough question. And the people say nothing. They're silent. And I imagine that was a pretty long, awkward silence. You know, and I kind of wonder about why that silence was there. You know, I think for, for some of the people there, it was a silence because of there was conviction and shame. Conviction and shame. And, and they were, it was true. They knew they were wavering between the world and between their Lord. And the conviction, though, it wasn't strong enough to step out from the crowd and stand with Elijah. And that's what was sad about that moment. The other, the other thing I think where some of that awkward silence was coming from is that there was people just honestly there, honestly confused. And they really thought that the worship of these false gods was really going to secure happiness for them. I mean, they knew of the Lord. They heard of the Lord. But he seemed so far and distant. And I, I really can't control the Lord. I can't make him do what I want him to do because he's not tame. He's wild and, and he scares me. He's holy. But these little farm gods, you know, I can make a little, little shape and set it on my shelf and I can make little offerings and it seems like I can make things happen this way. I'm in control. Well, it's conviction and, and, and just, I think we can imagine these people and uh, why they were silent, why they, they wanted control of things. You know, maybe we don't carve a good spouse out of a piece of pine but maybe, maybe we have in our minds the idea of that perfect spouse and how that idea brings us joy and we kind of bow down to that ideal. You know, and, and maybe we don't chisel out a stone, the successful man or the su- successful woman that we imagine, but, but we have that in our hearts and in our minds and, we, and, we, and that brings us joy and that's what we're going for. You know, basically, you know, you can just take this sentence and you can fill in the blank and you can find out whether there's an idol of your heart there. Just, just take this sentence and fill in the blank. 
In order for me to be truly happy, I must have For me to be truly happy, for me to be truly happy, I must have, and you fill in the blank. And if it's not Jesus, then there you have your Baal, your Asherah, your false God. Because you believe that you can find happiness outside of Jesus Christ. Well, Elijah goes from that wavering moment, the people wavering between two opinions, and they refuse. They refuse to make a decision at that moment. And so Elijah knows he's got to bring it to a head. So it's, it's confrontation time, and Elijah sets up the challenge to the false prophets and to the people standing there watching. And, he, and this is what he says. He says to them, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do two sacrifices, and we're going to see whose God is really God Almighty. We're going to set up, you guys, prophets of Baal and Asherah, all 850 of you, I want you to build an altar, put the wood on it, put the sacrifice on top of it, but don't light it on fire. I want you to stand back, and I want you to pray to Baal and to Asherah and ask them to light that sacrifice. And then I'm, I'm going to build an altar, an altar to the Lord. I'm going to make some stones and stack them up, put some wood on it, cut up an offering, put it on there, but I'm not going to light it. I'm going to stand back. And I'm going to pray to the Lord God. And the God who answers by fire is the true God, the one and only God. And the people are like, sounds good to me. Let's do it. And the prophet said, okay, we'll do it. So the prophets of Baal and the Asherah, they, they build their altar. They put the offering on it. And then they stand back. And the scriptures say that they, they dance around it. And so, bump, 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 bump. Hey! And then they say, oh, Baal, answer us. Light this sacrifice on fire. And no answer. They do that from morning until noon. Bump, 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 bump. Hey, and no answer. It's silent. And by noontime, Elijah's starting to get tired of this. And so he, he starts to taunt them. He starts to kind of poke fun at them. And, and actually, if, if you have a more literal translation of the scriptures, he, he yells out to them, hey, What's up? Is your God using the bathroom? Is he busy? Is he gone on vacation? Is he, is he asleep? Maybe you need to shout louder, and he'll wake up and answer you. And so that's what the prophets of Baal do. And Asherah, they, they do their thing. They start doing their self-torture thing. And they start cutting themselves with knives and spears and letting the blood flow. And they do their dance around. And they start shouting and think if they, they make it more of a sensation, maybe... Maybe Baal will answer. They do this from noon until evening, and nothing happens. Well, the sun's about to start going down. So Elijah says, all right, enough. People of Israel, come over here. And he, st- he rebuilds a broken-down altar. He takes 12 stones for the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel, and he puts them in the form of an altar. He lays some wood on top. He cuts up the sacrifice and lays it on there. And while he's doing that, he tells the people, I want you to dig a trench around this. And after you dig that trench, take these four jars of water, and I want you to fill them up full and pour them over the, the altar, over, this, over the wood and the sacrifice. And they do it, and they do it three times, and they do it so that the water soaks it, and not only come, soaks it, but comes down into the trench and fills the trench with water. And then Elijah cries out a very simple prayer, 
A prayer that's not a, I'm going to twist your arm, God. If you don't answer me, I'm going to cut myself. If you don't answer me, well, maybe, God, if I dance around and do a jig, you're going to answer me. No, just a simple prayer. And he prays this. Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And there you have it, the whole reason for this confrontation. God wants to turn the hearts of his people back to him. That's why. That's why this confrontation is going on. And after Elijah prays that prayer, you know what happens? Sue's thing. The power of God! Yeah. Fire comes down. I don't know what it looked like. I kind of imagine this like stream of just like, it's like a jet stream that comes out of the back of a jet and just this fire just coming down like a column and just consumes it. And it consumes not only the sacrifice and the wood, but it sacrifices, it, it consumes the, the, the stones that were there. It consumes the water that was in the trench and the soil so that nothing is left. And you know what the people do when they see this? It says they fell down prostrate. You know what that means? It means they fell down, face down like this. And they said, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. The Lord, He is God. That was their response. It was like lightning came down. And they knew that he could do it again. And they knew that he was the one and only God. They knew that they had been wrong and following Baal and putting their trust and trying to find happiness in this. That really the source of all life and the source of all happiness was in God alone. And so they turned their hearts back to him at that moment. That moment when they lay down prostrate, they were crossing a line in the sand that Elijah had drawn. They said, okay, we join you in serving the one and only God. And at that moment, uh, Elijah yelled out to the people and he said, grab, grab those false prophets. And they were put to death. Harsh thing. Now, I'm not advocating that we go and put to death all the, the false worship leaders in, in Asheville. We don't fight that way any longer. Our, our fight is not with flesh and blood. But like I said, we know who's behind it. That Baal, Baal, Zebub. And we, we war in the spiritual realms. And there's a war going on for the hearts of people and the hearts and, and for the minds of people. And it's going on right here. And it's going right, on, right in Asheville. And so the people fell down worship and turn to him. And, and hours, hours after that, rain came from God. And the rain came down and watered the land. A, Elijah warns Ahab, say, hey, take off. Get in your chariot. Go back to your palace because uh, the rain's going to get your, your chariot stuck in the mud. And uh, so Ahab takes off in his chariot. Elijah runs down ahead of him. He says that, the Bible says that he was filled with the Spirit of God. And he runs faster than that chariot past him and beats him to Jezreel where Ahab and Jezebel have their little palace. Now, I'm not sure why, Ahab, why Elijah ran to Jezreel, but when he gets there, first thing that happens is Jezebel hear, hears what happens. And I, she must have been a really mean lady and a scary lady because all she does is she says to Elijah, you know what happened, what you did to all the prophets of Baal and Asherah? I'm going to do that to you tomorrow. 
Elijah turns tail and he runs. And that's where I think of this scripture in James where it says Elijah was just a man like us. And I really believe it. Sometimes there are those moments where you're on top of Mount Carmel, drawing your line in the stand, sand and taking a stand in faith. And, and you're offering these big prayers of faith. And then the next moment, you're tucking your tail and you're running because you're scared. We've all been there. We've all been there. And that's what happened to Elijah. Elijah ran, was exhausted after a day of running. An angel of the Lord comes and ministers to him. And then he flees for another 40 days into the desert. Finally walks into a cave into the side of a mountain. And he hides there, hiding away. And the Lord's presence comes, Lord's presence comes to him. And the Lord asks him, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Get ready because my presence is about to come by. And so Elijah braces himself. And the scripture says that, that a great wind came by and the wind was tearing at the rocks in the mountain, blowing things apart. But the Lord's presence wasn't in the wind. And after that, there was a great earthquake that was shaking the boulders off the mountain and splitting the, the, the earth open. But yet the Lord was not in it. And then the scripture says that a fire came by, like a, like a prairie fire or a, a fire in California that just comes rushing past and moves so quickly and, and destroying everything in its path. And scripture says that the Lord was not in it. And then at that moment, it says that Elijah heard a gentle whisper. And Elijah recognized that the Lord's presence was in that whisper. And he pulled his cloak over his head and he came forward to the front of the cave and the Lord said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, well, I've been very zealous for you, Lord. I've been trying to obey you and encourage the people to obey you. But the people of Israel have broken down your altars. They've turned away from you. They've been killing all your prophets. And now they want to kill me too. And I'm the only one left. Now we know that's not true. He was just told that there was a hundred left hidden away somewhere in a couple of other caves. But Elijah was feeling pretty low feeling pretty alone, feeling like he was the only one because he was the only one who took a stand. But God, God doesn't give him a comforting message right away. God says, Elijah, obey me. Elijah, obey me. Do what I tell you to do. He doesn't bring the words of comfort and say, Elijah, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You, you are alone. It's okay. He doesn't do that. Elijah, get up and obey me. Go where I tell you to go. And then, then he brings a word of comfort. He says, Elijah, don't worry. There are 7,000 people in this nation who have not bowed down to Baal, who have kept their hearts pure before me. And know also I'm sending you to, to anoint a successor to you who's going to be your companion. His name is Elisha. He's going to walk with you. Elijah was not alone. Elijah was not alone. Well, Elijah's life points to the life of Jesus Christ. Elijah on Mount Carmel looks a lot like Jesus on Mount Calvary. Really does. You see, Elijah went and confronted the powers of darkness. Jesus went to confront the powers of darkness, of sin, and to destroy it there at the cross. But like Elijah, Jesus not only went there to confront the powers of darkness, but he also came to confront us. Confront us with who he is and his message. 
And he asks us the same question to us. Jesus asked us, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between the world and me? It's either or. It's not both. You must choose me. Jesus said repeatedly that he is life and that in him is real life. Translated in American terms, we think real life, happiness. I'll find happiness. Pursue the American dream. But Jesus says, no, it's not in the American dream. It's in me. I have abundant life to offer you, John 10.10. 10. You know what? He says that we must cross over from death to life. There is, there is a line in the sand and that we must stand with him if we want this real life. That we can't stay where we're at trying to get the best of both worlds. Sometimes I think we waver because we can't control Jesus. He's scary. He's not tame. He does what he wants to do. And he commands us like a God. And he's not like a dog on a leash for us. Although some of us wish that he was. But he's not. We want control. We want control of those things that we think will bring us happiness. And Jesus says, no. You want me, that's where the source of it is. But you can't control me. I'm the Lord. I'm the possessor, not you. Jesus makes an all or nothing choice. He says, if you don't take up your cross and follow him, you're not worthy to follow him. He says that whoever finds their life is going to end up losing it. You chase after that life outside of him, you're going to lose life. You're going to lose it all. You'll gain the world, but what good is it if you gain the world but yet lose your soul? Jesus says, though, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. You'll have that eternal life, and you'll have life to the full with me here and now. Well, the choice for Jesus, the choice to love him is also a confrontation with all the idols of our heart, all those false sources of happiness, and we can't have both. Like, it's, it's like in marriage. When you say that vow where you say, I will cherish you above all others and forsake all the rest. See, you're saying two things. You're saying yes to that, that woman or that man you're getting married to, but you're saying to all, no to all others. It's the same way with Jesus. You're saying yes to him and you're forsaking all others. You're saying no to all other gods. You're saying no to the idols of your heart. You're saying to all other, no to all other sources. If we don't say yes to Jesus and no to all others, then you're a polytheist. You're worshiping more than one God. You are going to have Baal or Beelzebub raise his ugly head in your life if you don't say no. See, they're saying yes to him and cutting off all others. So why do we waver? I think letting go of the familiar is scary to us. We let go of the familiar, those things that we think we control that bring us happiness. And for a moment, we're empty because we let go of that and we empty ourselves of it and we stand there empty. We're a little bit insecure. We're afraid. We're thinking, God, are you going to meet me here? Are you really going to fill me up with what I need? Are you really going to do what you promise? And that's scary. And it seems like losing odds. It seems like losing odds. I'm giving up all this for you, Jesus. But I want to tell you that it's the winning odds. 
I want to tell you that maybe it looks like it's against all odds, but I want to tell you that there's evidence that this is, this is what is going to win. See, the evidence, it's been there all along. The evidence of this life, the evidence of his love, the evidence of God himself, it's been there right there at the cross on Mount Calvary. God demonstrated his love for you, his heart for you, right there. There doesn't need to be any more demonstrations. There doesn't need to be any more uh, explanations. What God has done is sufficient. It's good. And you know, our response to the cross, it needs to be the same as those people on Mount Carmel. We need to be able to get down and say, the Lord is God. Jesus Christ is God. And we need to worship him. We need to turn away and turn back to him. You know, for those who are wavering, some of us just need to, to choose publicly. It needs to be a public moment like it was on Mount Carmel for those people. And some of us need that. And then there's other of us who really need just to come out of the hiding in our caves. And we need to know that we need, we need to stop acting like we're alone. And we need to come out and stand. Stand in faith. Listen to his gentle voice. His voice that has been pleading to us through his word all the time. It's there recorded in the scriptures. Yet we refuse to turn to it. Instead, we want to go to the latest event. We want to go to the latest sensation. The latest wind or earth, wind, and fire, I guess. It's not going to be there. He's got something to say to you. And he wants you to stand for him. To stand in faith. We need to stop searching. We need to be still and listen to his voice. And take your stand upon Jesus as the sole source of life and happiness instead of the idols of your heart. Nate and the guys, I want you to come up right now. and We're going to lead us in a song. And during this song, it's going to be a chance for us to respond. I want you to know that, that we've got to be willing to stand even if we stand alone. And I want you to know that the last promise that Jesus gave us before he ascended into heaven was, I will be with you to the very end of the age. He addresses that fear. He will be with us. So I want you to know that just like the power of God consumed Elijah's sacrifice, totally obliterated it, the power of God at at the cross can totally obliterate all guilt, all sin, all shame, all addictions, all obsessions. Because Jesus is the greater and greatest obsession that obliterates all other obsessions. And that's what you need. You need him to be your one great obsession. And I I, I just have the question, how long? How long will you waver? It's time to choose. I'd like you all to stand right now with me. And as the guys sing... um, this past week, a lot of our young people were at camp, and as Jason described, and I want you to know that there was something amazing. There was an amazing spiritual breakthrough that happened with our young people. It happened on Thursday night. God, of course, was doing all kinds of things before and after, but on that night, it wasn't the usual campfire night and invitation night. It was during worship that God broke the hearts of our young people. 
broke their hearts to where they were getting down on their knees and weeping before God, saying, God, forgive me. Weeping before God and before their friends, confessing to their friends their sins, saying, I need help. I can't walk alone. I know that I'm not meant to be alone. Total authenticity, total transparency, total genuineness. There, there were some people that received Jesus Christ into their life and made him Lord and the source of all life and the source of all their happiness and turned away, turned their hearts away from idols and turned back to him. There were folks, that, there were kids there that their hearts were hardened and they turned their hearts back to God. There were brothers and sisters repenting towards one another saying, I haven't treated you right. I haven't loved you like a brother should or a sister should. Forgive me. That's the kind of stuff that was going on. And it's so good. It's the kind of stuff that pastors and leaders and parents pray for. They pray for that kids will experience that. And sometimes they never do. But they did. It happened in the Highland Youth Group. And what I want to say to you today is that it's got to go broader. There's more of us that need to experience it besides the youth. I don't think God is finished with what he wants to do. And so I, I open up this time this morning as a time to respond. And uh, I like the students who, who made decisions, who crossed the line in the sand, who said, I'm turning my heart away from the idols and turning my heart to God. I, if you want, I'd like you to come up to the front. And if you're here today and you need to stand with them and you need to take your stand of faith, I'd like you to come up here too.